Acts chapter 19. Paul came to Ephesus and he found some disciples there. And so he asked them a very interesting question. He said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And the disciples, they, they respond and they said, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. What baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were, were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Shiva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. Uh, a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, we come with humble, eager, teachable hearts, Lord, to learn what you want to share with us, to, uh, to explore the teaching of your word and to apply it to our life in very practical ways. And so, God, we're coming to this moment as a divine appointment, not just another Sunday, not just another message, not just another text in Scripture, but, God, I firmly believe that this moment was ordained before time began, that we would all be here together and that we would explore this passage together and that we would be changed and transformed as a result of studying it together. And so, God, we give this to you. And, Holy Spirit, we ask for your help to both hear as well as to speak. Father, I pray that what you want to communicate this morning would be shared. Nothing more and nothing less to your glory and your praise. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. I've, uh, I've entitled the message Extraordinary Power because we've got some extraordinary things that happen in this text. In fact, uh, we have three extraordinary things that happen in these few short verses that we'll take time to explore this morning. Uh, but as I, I was thinking about power and I was thinking about the Christian life, I was I was reminded of a story that I'd heard many years ago about uh, Dr. Herbert Franklin. 
Herbert Franklin was a, was a missionary, well-known missionaries, traveled all over the world. And uh, he had this particular assignment as he was teaching a seminary class many years later, was re recounting uh, one of his early days in ministry on the mission field. And he told about how he got on the field and everything was new and he was, he was trained. But you know, you're never really trained to be on the mission field. You never really know what you're doing until you get out there. And even then you don't know what you're doing. You have to rely on God as we talked about last week. And so he gets out on the mission field and they're showing him the ropes and showing him the facilities and the materials that they use and the places, introducing them. And they show him his car that the mission organization is providing for him. And this thing is a beast. I mean, it's an old clunker. It, it barely runs. And, uh, you know, so Herbert's given the keys to this car and said, this is your car. And so the missionaries leave, the, the people that did the transition, and, and Herbert then tries to go to the grocery store to stock his, his uh, house with the things that they need uh, for the mission field. So he gets in the car, and, and it won't start. And uh, so he doesn't really know that much about cars, but uh, he, he figures maybe it needs a jump. And so he goes to a school nearby and asks the teacher, could you loan me some of your students? I just need a push with this car. So sure enough, they bump start the car, it starts right up, and off he goes. For the next two years on the mission field, Herbert learned every incline in his mission field area. He knew where the hills were. He knew where to park. He'd back up on this hill so that when he was done with his visitation or his teaching or his discipling, Herbert would be down the hill. You know, he'd be off on his way. And he was really kind of proud of himself that he, he was able to accomplish this from that point on without really any help, just by knowing where to park and how to park and all that. Well, a couple of years went by and, uh, and Herbert's wife became sick and they had to leave the mission field. And so uh, in preparation for the transition, this young missionary comes in and, and Herbert introduces him to everything, including the clunker car. It's still living and, uh, and he's passing on the keys. And he begins to describe to this young missionary about you know, where to park and he's drawn a maps and everything of all the inclines and all the places that he can park on these hills to bump start this car. Meanwhile, as Herbert's describing all of this and writing all these directions down, this young, uh, this young missionary just pops open the hood of the car and kind of pokes around there a little bit and he says, Herbert, there's a loose wire here. And, uh, and he just kind of tightened the connection, got in, give me the keys to the car, Broom, started it right up. <laughs> so for two years, this missionary, a doctor uh, with a degree, had been, you know, clunking around in this car looking for hills to be able to get his car powered up. Uh, needless trouble had actually become for him norm, the routine what he expected to be a part of every day. The power was there all the time, but a loose connection kept uh, Dr. Jackson from experiencing the benefits of a fully operative car, simply because there was a loose connection. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that, um, that even as Christians, we can be kind of driving a car that really is is operable in our Christian life, and yet we're finding all kinds of creative ways to bump start the thing because it's not really operating properly. There's a loose connection. And probably the most important thing that I see, and this is just my opinion, the, the most important loose connection I see in the church today is the loose connection between his people and the power of the Holy Spirit. And God has given us this great and mighty power. In fact, in, in Ephesians, he calls it an incomparably great power. It's the same power that God used to raise Jesus Christ from the dead. And that power, the Bible says, was given to us in Christ for ministry. It's not for ourselves. It's not to flaunt it. It's not to show off. But it's simply to do the work of the ministry in a way that, that supersedes what you could normally expect of the effort of human flesh. 
And yet I found myself years for years, especially toward the beginning of ministry, I, I really, this little story described me to a T. I had creatively found ways around some of the spiritual powerlessness that I had in my life. And so I just found ways. I worked harder. I, I stayed up longer. I uh, was trying to be more creative. I tried, I tried, I tried. And, and it may be for you the same thing. You know, like, how do you overcome sin? Aren't, are there some of you out there that are just, you just cannot seem to overcome things? Are there some of you that can't seem to overcome discouragement or depression or bad marriage or difficulty with your children? And you just seem to be struggling with these same issues all the time. Here's what I want to suggest to you. That even when, even when everything is, is perfect, we still struggle. However, I think it's possible that maybe this morning God wants to look under your hood and say, I think we have a loose connection and this may be the source of some of the problem. But we're so used to the routine, we're kind of almost engaged to the idea of, of bump-starting our spiritual car all the time. And it's like, well, gee, I was kind of proud of myself. I was able to do all this without, without that connection. And what I want to share with you this morning is that I believe God is calling us as individuals and as a church to explore the possibility that we need to have a stronger connection with the power of the Holy Spirit ministering in our lives, in our lives, and through our lives. And I think that that's what we're going to discover as we, as we explore this text of Acts chapter 19. We're told that Paul came to Ephesus and he found some disciples there. Now, we don't know much about these disciples. We do know a few things, and we'll explore that together. They quite likely were disciples of Apollos, who we studied in Acts chapter 18. And if you remember Apollos, a very intelligent, highly educated man, and knew thoroughly the scriptures. And yet, when Aquila and Priscilla met him, they realized that he was deficient in a full understanding of the gospel. In essence, he was an Old Testament believer and believed in the coming Messiah, but had not fully understood that gospel and therefore had not put his trust in Christ. And so Aquila and Priscilla so kindly and graciously invited him over for a meal and explained the way of God to him more adequately, as the scripture teaches. And so now Paul is running into some disciples of Apollos who he had previously trained before this new understanding uh, came to his heart through Priscilla and Aquila. And I believe that these disciples knew about Jesus, they appeared to be disciples of Jesus, but the longer Paul spoke with them, the more apparent it became to Paul that something was wrong, something was missing. And so he asked them a very interesting question. He said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? I can't think of any other time in scripture where anybody asked anybody this question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And the disciples, they, they respond and they said, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. They said, we, we're just kind of in the dark. They hadn't even heard of such a thing. And so Paul begins, you know, he's un, basically he's under the hood of their spiritual car. And he's saying something's not right here. He, he evidently, in the course of conversation, began to recognize some deficiencies in their spiritual life. We don't know what he saw. It might have been um, there was no joy. They were basically living in maybe to some degree under the Old Testament covenant and the Old Testament law. And that's a burdensome thing. That's a heavy weight that God wants to lift through Christ. And so, or it could have been just no fruit of the Spirit. They could have just been technically followers of God, but there was no joy, no peace, no, no uh, vibrancy in their walk with God. And, and so Paul begins to kind of diagnose the problem. And the first question is, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? 
And the second question is, when they said they didn't even know about the Holy Spirit, what baptism did you receive? Now, baptizo is the word in Greek, and it means to immerse. And it was a, um, an out, outward declaration of the symbol of repentance and new life. And what happened is that it was an open identification with a particular teacher or teaching. And I want to share with you that baptism uh, existed before Christ. Uh, baptism was a part of Judaism. Baptism was a part of cultic teaching. Baptism uh, was just a, a way of saying that I am now committing myself to you as a teacher to follow your teaching. And so baptism wasn't new to the disciples of Christ. They were familiar with it. But when a person was baptized into Christ, they were being baptized into the lordship of Jesus and from that point on would be under the tutelage of Christ alone, not any other teacher. And so these, these uh, disciples that Paul met were asked this question, in whose name were you baptized? What baptism did you receive? And they received John's baptism and they clearly state this. Okay, so they've never been baptized into Christ, only in John's baptism. And so, again, this is exactly what Apollos had said in Acts chapter 18. He said, I was baptized into John's baptism. That's all he knew. He didn't know Jesus' baptism. And so Paul begins to explain in, in verses 4 and 5 what John's baptism was. It says he preached a baptism of repentance, which means turning away from, from sin. And he also told the people to believe in the one coming after him. Now, the text tells us and clarifies that he's referring to Jesus. But even John the Baptist himself wasn't completely sure of who the Messiah was, even up until the time that just shortly before he was beheaded, he was in jail. He had to send his disciples off and says, you know, can you ask Jesus one more time? Can you just, I just have to know, is he really the Messiah? Is he really the, the, the anointed one, the Christ of God? And so, you know, his disciples come back and said, yeah, he is, he's the guy. But, but John the Baptist, all the time he was baptizing, was telling people, repent, turn away from your sin. The Messiah is coming. The long-awaited anointed one, the Christ, is on his way. And then later, we were told that there he is. That's the Lamb of God. But John wasn't even certain himself. There was a great deal of uncertainty. And so these men who were baptized under John's baptism were still in that kind of incomplete gospel. They didn't have a fully comprehensive understanding of what Jesus had done on the cross. And so from verse five to six, we, we have a very quick transition because as soon as they hear that they need to be baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus, it says that Paul baptized them. I could be wrong, but I, just as a pastor myself, I would never baptize someone a, a sentence later if I didn't have a feeling that they understood the gospel. So I'm conjecturing right now, so take it for what it's worth. But I'm, I'm speculating that between verses five and six, Paul spent some time explaining to them Jesus' baptism. And he explained Jesus' death on the cross and Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' power. And he explained the ministry of the Holy Spirit and, and the power that God wanted to give the church through the ministry of the Holy Spirit to be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And I believe that Paul expounded these things to these disciples. And I believe he said, do you understand all these things? And they said, yes, we do. And Paul said, would you like to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ? And would you like to receive him as your Lord to be fully complete in Christ? And I believe they said, yes, we would. And at that point, verse six tells us that Paul baptized them and he placed his hands on them. Now, 
I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to answer a question before I even ask the question about whether these men were actually born again already when Paul laid his hands on them and when he baptized them. I, I'm going to suggest that one of the reasons that I believe that they were not Christians up until this point, they were followers of Yahweh and they were looking forward to the Messiah, but they didn't have a complete understanding of the gospel and had not yet received Jesus as their savior is because Paul baptizes them again. If they were baptized in the name of Jesus and they were born again Christians, there would be no need to baptize them again. And um, I have to tell you that there are probably a lot of you that have been baptized more than once. And uh, probably because many of you were baptized as infants and you didn't even know what was going on. And you're thinking, I've had you come to me and say, Pastor Bob, can I be baptized again? I, I had no idea what was happening. And, uh, and I would like to be baptized as an as a understanding adult of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I said, absolutely you can. And you should. And so Paul is baptizing uh, these men, and then he lays hands on them, which is just really uh, conveying an affirmation or confirmation or identification with these men as believers. He's identifying them and understanding them to be believers in Jesus Christ, and now he's laying hands on them, and he's praying for them as new believers, which is very normal to do. And in the midst of that, the Bible tells us that something quite dramatic happens. The Holy Spirit came on all 12 of these guys, and it's also evidenced with speaking in tongues and prophecy. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about tongues or, or prophecy. I will touch on it briefly. But my point uh, that I want to get to this morning is going to be a little bit different. And that's that uh, this whole question, is this normative for people to evidently believe in God and then have a second experience? Is it normative for a person to receive Christ as your savior and only kind of receive half of the gospel and that you have to receive the second half sometime later, subsequent to it? It could be right away, it could be months, it could be years later that you actually receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I have to tell you, this passage, and there are actually three others in the text of, of Acts that we've already gone through, and I'll touch on those, were so confusing to me as a new believer because I would have people tell me, Bob, when you receive Christ, you receive the Spirit of Christ, you know? And I'm like, well, that makes sense, you know? Otherwise, how would I change? How would I have the transformation if God, God didn't take up residence in me? But then I would have people tell me, well, wait a second, Bob, in the book of Acts, you know, we have people that believe in God and yet later received uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I was just kind of, kind of confused, to be honest. And over years, I was struggling with all these things until God began to show me a pattern in Scripture of why we have this extraordinary experience. In other words, it's extraordinary because it's not ordinary. It's extraordinary. It's out of the norm. There's something unique about this situation that took place in this text that begins to make sense of all of these issues of when does a person receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? When does the Holy Spirit take up residence in a person's heart? Is it at the moment of conversion or is it sometime later? And do the gifts come sometime later with the laying on of hands? And so I want to address some of those questions here uh, for just a, a few moments. Here are the options in my thinking. One, these men were saved and had a subsequent experience they were believers in Jesus Christ and that uh, when Paul came along, they had, uh, they didn't, they'd never had anyone lay hands on him. They'd never been prayed over by someone to receive the ministry of the Holy Spirit and they'd never been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And the result was is that they needed a second experience. It's often referred to as the second blessing or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And when it's defined narrowly in that sense, it means that it's after you come to Christ. And I remember as a young Christian, 
uh, I was so excited about the Lord, and I was a manager at Hopeco Stationers and working there in Honolulu. And we had these, uh, all these uh, nonprofit accounts, and this pastor came in, and I, was, I, I grabbed him. He was this really great big guy, and I just, I'm a Christian too, you know? And I was so excited. Uh, but then he said to me, he, he was like, oh, I'm so happy about that. His next question was, but have you received the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And the way it was asked was clear to me that I was somehow a second-class Christian until I had this experience. And, and if you've ever been exposed to this, you know what I'm talking about. So that's a possibility, that these 12 men were already saved, already believed in Jesus, but they needed a subsequent experience. And, and some people would say, this is normative for the Christian life. In other words, it's not just for this unique experience. It's not extraordinary. It's normative. And every Christian goes through this kind of experience where you need to go to some sort of a, a really... Pentecostal church or some sort of a vibrant church that believes in the gifts of the Holy Spirit in order to receive this second blessing because a conservative church won't offer that to you. Are you following me? That's a possibility. The second possibility is that these men were saved and spirit-filled and subsequently received spiritual gifts as a result of laying on of hands. However, I don't think that that's a possibility because these men have already confessed we don't even know who the Holy Spirit is. So that probably is not one of the viable options. So the, the second possibility is that these were spirit-filled men but had never uh, received the gifts. But again, I don't think that's a viable option because they've uh, confessed a complete ignorance of the Holy Spirit. The third option is the one that I ascribe to, and I'll share with you why in a moment. But I believe these men were not saved. I believe these men were prepared and uh, that they had been uh, uh, eager to follow God. They were God-fearing Gentiles. These were men who had an interest in spiritual things. They were following God as much as they knew how, but the gospel was incomplete. I would suggest to you that the book of Acts is a transitional book. It's a transition from the Old Testament law to the New Testament covenant of grace. And it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a transition from Moses to Jesus. And now we are seeing kind of the cleaning up and the, and the tying up of loose ends in the lives of people who believe in God, are waiting for the Messiah, but have not yet had a complete understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ and have not been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And I will share with you the reasons why I, I believe that. The first reason is, uh, goes to the issue of why many people believe these guys are Christians because they are defined as disciples in this text. However, uh, as I mentioned earlier, people that are baptized are also called disciples. And uh, the Pharisees, they referred in Matthew, uh, in Matthew in several locations, they referred to their own followers as disciples. And the Bible refers to them as disciples. People that followed Christ for a short period of time but then turned away are, re are called disciples. We have all kinds of people called disciples in the Bible who are not born-again Christians, who are not following Christ. And so uh, the idea that because they're identified as disciples signifying that they're believers uh, doesn't really necessarily hold up, though that's often the case, it's not always the case. The second reason is, is that, um, uh, and I want to read several scriptures to you. I'd like you to turn, in fact, to these scriptures. The first is in Ephesians 1, uh, verse 13, Ephesians 1, 13, and 14. Because the Bible makes it very, very clear outside of these extraordinary experiences that the normative experience is that when you receive Christ, you receive the spirit of Christ. You can't separate the two. Ephesians chapter one, verse 13, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. We're talking about the gospel, people receiving it. Having believed, you were marked. This is all past tense, not will be marked, might be marked, gotta go to the right church to get marked. 
but you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So clearly, he's writing to this very church that he's visiting now, and he's describing what's normative. These 12 were extraordinary. The rest of the ministry was normative that a person would believe in Christ and immediately be, be marked and sealed by the Holy Spirit. Turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter's sermon, where 5,000 people came to Christ. Again, he's preaching to, in this case, Jews who are incomplete, who don't know the gospel and yet are responding to the message of Peter. And they basically say to Peter, what do we need to do to be saved? What do we need to do to experience this new life you're talking about and be forgiven of our sins? And in uh, chapter two, verse 38, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in John's name? No, in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? For the forgiveness of your sins. This is the gospel message. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not might or could, but you will receive it. If you are in the family of Christ, Paul is saying, if you are baptized, if you believe, if you repent, you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. It is going to happen. Romans chapter eight. There's so many verses I could take you to. I'm gonna take you to one last one, verse nine. Turn to Romans eight, verse nine. I'm having you turn to these because I need you to see these for yourself. Paul is making a, 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 a plea for the, the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's basically saying in this text is that you need this, you need the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. And he's saying that this is a normative part of the Christian life to receive the Holy Spirit. And he goes so far as to say in Romans 8, 9, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So, Definitively, Paul is saying you cannot name the name of Christ and call yourself a Christian while simultaneously saying your spiritual life is incomplete because you don't have the Holy Spirit. When you received Christ, you received the Spirit of Christ. You may not have received all the power. Uh, the Bible says in Ephesians uh, chapter 5, verse 18, that we are to be continually being filled by the Holy Spirit. And I, I don't know about you, but all night long, it just seems to kind of drain away. And in the morning, I got to get up and say, I need your power, Lord. I need you to fill me again today. And, and I, I get in situations where, you know, I need to be filled up. It's kind of like a car. Oh, how we wish we only had to fill that car up once at the prices we pay. And it would be done forever. But we, to the pump, we must go. And, uh, and very much in the same way, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, even though we're filled by the Holy Spirit on, on the, at the point of conversion, we need to keep on being filled. And, and we see this as normative in the New Testament where uh, the disciples are continually being filled just before they do some sort of a ministry or an outreach or before they're standing uh, before a king and on trial, the Holy Spirit came upon them and filled them and then something powerful took place. So I wanna make it clear, I'm talking about this beginning point. When does the Holy Spirit come into the heart of a believer? We all acknowledge that after we come to Christ, we need continual fillings of the Spirit. We are commanded to be filled by the Spirit after conversion, but we're talking about a new yieldedness, a new surrender, an empowerment for particular tasks and particular ministries. We're talking about being led by the Spirit. We're talking about keeping in step with the Spirit. We're talking about being guided by the Spirit. But when does this actually begin? And I would suggest to you, based on these texts, and there's certainly many others, that when you received Christ, you received His Spirit. 
how else can we possibly describe the transformation that takes in truly born-again believers? How can we say we simply agree mentally and cognitively with the gospel, and yet there's no power inside of us to bring about the change? How could we possibly agree with 2 Corinthians 5.17 that says if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old is gone, the new has come. What's the new? It's the power of his presence in our life to live differently and to have a completely different perspective. And then from that point on, we have this opportunity. It's kind of like Dr. Frank Franklin under the hood of his car. It's like got a loose wire. We need to be checking the engine. We need to do maintenance checks on our, on our spiritual vehicle. Are we tuned up? Are we, are, have we gotten so used to being powerless that now it's so routine that we have forgotten what it's like to live in the power of the Holy Spirit? But God is calling us. We cannot do what God has called us to do without the power of the Holy Spirit. That happens at the point of conversion. And then it's a, it's a lifelong relationship with the Holy Spirit, just like it is with God the Father and with God the Son. And so I want to encourage you. Um, I, I trust that most of you uh, are, are tracking with all of this. And some of you may be like, gee, I got a thousand questions. I'm happy to answer as many as I can after the service. Um, but most of you are tracking with this. And my larger concern in sharing these things is that we as believers may have been a bit like Dr. Uh, Franklin who have adjusted our life around the powerlessness, just thinking this is how the Christian life is. And what I wanna share with you that maybe the most important thing that you hear this morning is what we've just talked about and that God would like to, to connect you to the ministry of the Holy Spirit and renew that and reignite you and give you the capacity to follow him and to be fruitful in ways that you never thought possible or imaginable. And I believe that God is continuing to do that. And I'm finding that in my own life. I'm finding myself, I've been a Christian for many years and a pastor for many years. And I'm still, I'm finding myself after preparing this teaching, I'm like on my face, God, please don't let me miss anything. Please reveal to me if it, there's some way that I've done a workaround. You know, I've somehow rewired the car to make it work, but it's not working properly. Is there something that I have done I want to live in the fullness of what you want to do, not just for my sake, but the sake of the kingdom and the sake of the church and even the sake of your lives, that everything that God wants to do will be accomplished. And, and I pray that that's your prayer too, that you'll just be able to examine your life and say, am I really operating in the power of the Holy Spirit or am I just kind of working this Christian thing and doing the best I can? And I would suggest to you that God is inviting you this morning to let him under the hood of your spiritual car and make the connection. You can't do it, but if you ask him, he will do it, and he will bring about a remarkable change that I believe God is needing uh, to happen in order for us to be as useful as he's calling us to be. Now, the second question I wanna ask you is that how do you know if you have the Holy Spirit? It's tied to the first, but I wanna touch on it briefly. How do you know if you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Well, my first question is, have you believed in Jesus Christ? Have you acknowledged your sin and asked his forgiveness? And have you asked him to come into your life and be the Lord of your life? The Bible says that if you've done that, then you have received the spirit of Christ. What's the evidence of someone really receiving Christ? Not just mouthing the words. I, I like what uh, G. Campbell Morgan said. He said, men may come very near. They may be intellectually convinced of the supremacy of Jesus. They may even decide that they will adopt his ethical ideal. They may go so far as to determine that they will imitate the perfection of his example, but these things do not make men Christians. 
So how do you know? What's the evidence that you have been truly born again and by virtue of that, truly filled by his spirit? Fruit, thank you. I love it when people help me along with a message because I definitely need it a lot. And sometimes I actually even ask for it. And so, uh, but here we've got fruit, which is exactly right. What's the fruit like? What, do you have peace? Are you seeing a transformation in your desires? Are you, are you hating sin that you used to love and just be drawn to? Are you wanting, wanting to move toward Christ? Do you have a hunger for his word? Are you seeing love and peace and patience and kindness and faithfulness and all the fruit of the spirit? Are you seeing those grow in your life? Are you seeing a different heart? Do you want to serve the Lord? Are you wanting to tell other people about Christ? If those things are in your life in some measure, then you are born again and you have been filled with the Holy Spirit. And so I want to share with you that I want to confirm because some of you may be thinking, gee, I don't know. Well, if you've got fruit, if, if just the fact that you're here to me says volumes that you want to be here. And some of you may have been dragged here, but probably most of you actually wanted to come. Okay. For those of you that really wanted to come, that in itself is evidence that the Holy Spirit is in you because who in their right mind would want to sit in a tent on Sunday morning when there's beach and surf and hiking and everything else that we've got on this island? But you are here because God is at work in your life. And it's extraordinary. And we need to allow that extraordinary work of God to take place in our life. Please don't be satisfied with an ordinary Christian life. He has made it possible for us to have power. Stop pushing your spiritual car around the block and let him make the connection. The second thing that I want to touch on in this text starts in verse 8, and it's the extraordinary power of God's word. Paul says in Romans 1.16 that he's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And because of that, the predominant ministry that Paul had was the teaching of the word of God. Verse 8 tells us that he entered the synagogue, as was his custom, and he spoke boldly in the synagogue for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But even with that, there were Jews in the temple that refused to believe, and they actually went so far as to publicly malign the way, to revile or curse or speak evil of. And so Paul did what he always did. He kind of just shook the dust out of, the, out of his robe and off his shoes, and he and he left and he took his disciples, these 12 plus probably many others that had joined him by this time. And he had daily discussions with them, we're told, in the Hall of Tyrannus. Tyrannus was, uh, the Hall of Tyrannus was named after its primary teacher, who was Tyrannus. And uh, it's kind of interesting, his name means tyrant, and nobody really knows whether his, uh, his parents named him that as a toddler or whether, uh, <laughs> or whether his students uh, uh, named him that because of his uh, maybe extensive homework that he handed out. Nobody really knows. But, uh, but he had daily discussions and it says that he was used greatly of the Lord in verse 10 because he continued teaching God's word for two years. That's what he did. He just taught the word of God. This book that has ink and paper and binding and leather is the power of God because it contains in it the word of God who ultimately we know from John 1 is Christ. And in this book, we have the heart of God. We have the heart of the Father. We have his priorities, his mission, his desires, his plans. And they're laid out for us in this book. And when we read this book, it has power to change us. When we read this book as a family, it has power to change our children and our spouse and our family. 
When we read this book in church, it has power. It's not just a book of words. It has power. God has given it power. It cuts to the very heart of us. It's able to separate the intents and thoughts of our very heart. It's like a double-edged sword, the Bible tells us. It's powerful. And so Paul, rather than resorting to gimmicks that were so common in the day and so common in our day, he simply just teaches this book, explaining it. As, as Pastor Chuck likes to say, simply teaching the word of God simply. And the result is phenomenal things were taking place. Now, in a secondary fashion, something's happening parallel to the teaching of the word. And it tells us in this uh, verse 12 that Paul was used by God to do extraordinary miracles. And again, I want to emphasize extraordinary, not normal. This is beyond. This is something supernatural that's taking place. And it tells us that uh, Paul, this isn't the first time in Iconium, in, um, in uh, Acts 14, uh, Paul is preaching the word and, uh, with Barnabas and God confirmed the message by his grace through various miracles that he allowed these uh, apostles to perform. So it was a purpose for confirming to people who'd never heard the gospel before, wow, this is serious stuff. I've never seen anything like this before. The healings and the casting out of demons. In fact, that's the primary purpose for the, the, uh, this type of healing ministry or casting out demons was evangelistic as well as freeing the person who was enslaved. Um, to authenticate the deity of Christ was one of those purposes. To authenticate the, uh, the authority of the apostles to be teaching this message and to authenticate the gospel of Jesus Christ as the true word of salvation to those that heard. Now, we, we find something really interesting happening next in the text because we're told that even Paul's handkerchiefs and his apron became healing agents for those that were sick. I, I'm thinking, you know, actually, handkerchiefs is kind of a nice thing. It's, you almost envision a pastor in a three-piece suit with his, his little hanky sticking out of his pocket that he pulls out and, and dabs himself with and then tucks back in his pocket. This word means sweatband in Greek. This is Paul's, these are Paul's work clothes, they're sweaty, they're dirty, they're stained. And, uh, and Paul comes to work in the morning uh, when he's not teaching at the Hall of Tyrannus and he, and he looks, good grief, I can't find my sweatbands. Who is my aprons? Everything's missing. What was happening is that people in the community were coming and pilfering his stuff. And they, it was superstitious for them, but they were grabbing his stuff and saying, maybe if you touch Paul's you know, sweatband, you know, it's like, sweatband, you kidding me? Just touch the sweatband, would you? We've tried everything else. And they touch the sweatband and boom, you know, they get healed. And demons were being cast out of people by using the sweatband and the apron of Paul. Now, there's a reason that it's called extraordinary. It's not normative. And um, uh, kind of the rule of thumb in the Bible, when we talk about these unusual circumstances, should the church be using hankies to heal people or sweatbands or whatever you want to, you know, your sweaty running clothes, you know? Should we be using these things? Well, here's the rule of thumb. For the church to practice it, we need, number one, did Jesus model it? That's important. If Jesus didn't model it, we shouldn't be doing it. It's extraordinary. It may be God, but it's not to be pursued as a pattern for the church. Secondly, did the New, church, did the New Testament church practice it? Did they practice it? Do we see them operating in that, in that realm? And thirdly, is it taught in the New Testament that the church should practice these things? And if all three of those things aren't happening, we're not rejecting it, because obviously this is God working through, uh, through Paul's 
sweatbands to a very superstitious people to bring them to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It was a unique situation. Because it doesn't fit all three of those criteria, we don't practice hanky healings in our church. We just don't do it, okay? And, and we don't have hanky seminars and sweatband seminars and, you know, how to sweat the certain way. And when you do the hanky, hold this hand up and that hand this way and, make your, and say these words, you know. We don't do those things because these are not normative. This was miraculous. This was outside of the box. What was Paul doing? He was preaching the word. That's what he did. All this other stuff was up to God. And, uh, and, and so we find this very extraordinary experience um, happening. So here's the rule of thumb is that we are to receive whatever God does that we can identify being from God, but we are only to pursue those activities that we can find established in Scripture. So when somebody tells you, well, I know it's not in the Bible, but it's a new thing that God is doing, be cautious, because many people have been misled by false teaching and false doctrine as a result of that, um, of that kind of a strategy and approach. Now, there's one last area we want to talk about, and it's verse 13 where it begins. The extraordinary power of Jesus' name. Philippians chapter 2, verse uh, 9 says that God exalted Jesus Christ to the highest place and gave him the name that was above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that he is God to the glory of God the Father. And so uh, we find that this name of Jesus is enormously powerful. That's why we're told to pray in Jesus' name. That's why we end our prayers in Jesus' name. That's why we, uh, we're constantly acknowledging his name. That's why when I'm faced with a temptation or a trial and I'm gonna uh, rebuke the enemy, I do it in Jesus' name because it's his name that has significant power. But sometimes people, um, uh, charlatans, will try to use a method like the name of Jesus and import it into their superstitious pagan behavior and that's exactly what we find happening in this next section of Scripture. We find that there were Jewish exorcists. And it's interesting, this word driving out evil spirits, the Greek is exorcistes, where we get our word exorcism from. And, uh, and so they were exorcising demons, not in the sense of let's go for a run, but we're trying to run you out of this person's life. And, and, but they were not using their own methodologies. Why? Because these seven sons of Shiva, he was a high priest in the house of God, and yet they were like Dr. Franklin. There wasn't any power anymore. And so they were, they were reaching here and there for pagan practices, anything else, to try to get the engine of spiritual life to go. And they recognized the great need because there were demon-possessed people in their community, but they didn't have any power to actually deliver these people because they weren't connected with Christ. And so when they saw Paul and his power and his authority over these demons and over illness and sickness, they decided, well, what does Paul say? Well, he says in the name of Jesus. And so these Jewish exorcists were invoking the name of Jesus saying, by the name of Paul and his God, Jesus Christ, I command you to come out. Not in Jesus' name directly because they had no relationship with Jesus but in the God or the person of Jesus Christ whom Paul follows, not we follow, but Paul follows, we command you to come out. And they were evidently successful, at least on occasion, until one day an evil spirit questioned their credentials. <laughs> this is like, wow. Talking about being put on the carpet, you know, here. It's like an evil spirit who's like, 
all his other evil spirit buddies have been putting up with it. And I can hear the little discussion going on in the, in the, in the, in the demonic realm. Man, did you just get cast out by those seven sons of Siva? You know, it's like, yeah, I just got booted out again. And then finally, one of them says, have any of you guys asked this guy what authority he's doing this in? No, it never even occurred to us. So one demon one day says, whose name are you operating in? I know Jesus. And that word is gnosko. It means to know intimately. He's very, the demon was very familiar with who Jesus was. And then the next thing he says is that I know Paul epistemai, which is a different word. It means I'm acquainted with Paul. I know about him. I don't know everything about him. I know a lot more about Jesus. But I know Paul is tied in with Jesus. But here's the, here's the Greek. It's even more emphatic. It says, but you, who are you to be casting me out? Where is your power? Where is your authority? And the seven sons are like, uh, 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 Paul, Paul, you know? And they're like, wrong answer. And this demon who's possessed this man gets after big time these seven guys and he gives them a whooping that they'll never forget. And they end up being beaten, jumped on, overpowered and left naked and bleeding. Now, boy, I tell you, if that will humble you in ministry uh, and kind of set the, set the stage for who really has power and who doesn't, this did it because they saw, the people in this town saw the power of Paul and yet they saw the powerlessness of the seven sons of Shiva. And here's what I want to ask you, is that what do people see in you? Do they see a church or your life as virtually powerless? And they're thinking, well, gee, you don't have any answers, really. I don't see the answers in your life. So why would I go to church? Why would I come to Jesus if you have the same problems I do and you have no answers yourself and there's no resolution? And I would suggest to you, if that's the case, the reason is, is that God needs to get under the hood of your car and make a connection again. Maybe you've lost connection with what God has made possible for us through his spirit. But the result of this beating that these guys took is as it says in verse 17 that the Jews and the Greeks who heard about these things, they were all seized with fear. It means to be alarmed or frightened. The word is phobos, phobos or phobos in Greek. And, and it means that they had a dread of these things that were happening. Now, what's interesting is that I think this incident with these seven sons impressed the people of Ephesus with the reality, number one, that there is a demonic realm. You know, not everybody believes that, but there is a demonic realm and it was evidence to them on that day. Secondly, it was evidence to them that God and the power of Christ was superior to anything that Satan could produce. And that produced salvation because in the next verse it says that they held the name of the Lord Jesus in high honor. It's uh, megaluno, mega, of course, we big. Luno, it means respect or esteem or honor. And the town, though they didn't necessarily believe the gospel initially, when they saw the power of the ministry of God's work in these simple Christians' lives, suddenly they held the name of Jesus Christ in high honor. And I want to ask you another question. At work and in your home and with your children and with your spouse and with your in-laws and with your outlaws and all the other people in your life, do people hold the name of Jesus Christ in high regard because of you? Or do they look at your life and say, you know what, you do everything that my friends do. You smoke dope and you get drunk and you, you sleep around and, and yet you show up at church on Sunday and why should I not act any differently than you? And we wonder why our kids do the very same things because we model that very lifestyle for them. But these disciples and these 
leaders in the New Testament church in Ephesus were in, people of integrity. They were authentic. They were leading a vibrant, passionate, on fire, white hot Christian life. And the result is, is that people's evaluation of Jesus Christ because of their lives, his name was held in high esteem. And the result is, is that many people believed and they came and openly confessed their evil deeds and they publicly burned their, their uh, sorcery scrolls, which they'd never done before. These were people that it, maybe some of them were believers and they were still kind of holding on to the, this, this old stuff. I, I shared last night with the uh, fellowship as we were having church that many years ago, my wife and I went to Mexico and, and my sister uh, lives in Mexico and is very fluent, knows a lot of people. And uh, we went to the, uh, to the um, pyramids there and that the Aztecs had built. And my sister said, come, I know a farmer and uh, he plows his field and he's still digging, he's just constantly digging up little figurines that they sold at the temple as little uh, idol worship for the people to go home with to put on their mantles or whatever to pray over to have their household gods. And at the time I'm a Christian, but I'm, I'm still thinking, wow, really? That's cool, you know? And so these are thousands of years old. And so we go out there and the farmer's out there and he knows my sister very well. And, and he gives us assortment about, you know, we pick out about five of these things, you know, and they're only about this big. And I'm thinking, okay, black felt, koa frame, lighting, you know, and I'm thinking this will be really neat to be able to have this on display. And, you know, my wife being uh, more sensitive to the Holy Spirit than I sometimes am, she says, what are you thinking? Th those, are, those are prayed over by the people that make them that they'd be filled with demonic power. Yeah, 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 I know, but they're thousands of years old. You know, it's like, you know, what do you want to do? She says, we should throw them away. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding. These are artifacts. We need to find a museum to put these things in or something, you know? And then I, I was thinking about this text of scripture and the Lord busted me. But I think what happens is that at some point, even as Christians, we have to be willing to let go of things that we hold dear and that we think have value, even if they're precious to us and even if they have great value. 50,000 drachmas is the equivalent of 150 years of income for one man at that time, or 150 men, a full year of income. That was amazingly expensive act of obedience for these people to do. And I want to share with you that one of the things that prevents people from experiencing the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit is that they continue harboring and engaging in some sort of behavior or, or activity that's dishonoring to God. And I know, I mean, I, I've done it myself. I, I think, wouldn't it be nice to have a little tiki god there or a little mask from Africa or something from Bali, you know? And, but you, you, we've got to realize that these things are prayed over by their creators, by those that fashion them, that they would be imbued with spiritual demonic forces to have impact and power. And we bring them in our, into our house and say, oh, doesn't that look decorative? You know, isn't that wonderful? You know, we got the clubs and we got this and we got that hanging on the wall. And, and we're not thinking about what we brought into our home. And I, and I go back to the issue of pornography. What have you brought into your home? Either through print media or through internet. What have you brought in your home through the type of movies that you watch? You know, we say, oh, it's only a little swearing, but we're bringing in demonic influence in our home when we do that. Oh, it's only a little nudity. It's only a little suggestiveness. It's only a, it's only a, you know, a little uh, uh, same-sex activity. It's, it's not that much. The theme of the movie, oh, it's so good. It's got, it's redemptive. I can see the message of Jesus in this whole thing. It's like, I don't think so, you know? Um, but there may be things that we've brought into our lives and into our homes that we've justified. And I want to encourage you, 
burn it. Now, don't, 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 don't start a fire, but you get the idea. Get rid of it. Don't give it away. Don't have a garage sale and give it to your neighbors next door to influence them. Dump it, crush it, pulverize it, but most importantly, eject it from your life because this was enormously important for this church because the Bible says after this, as a result of these things, the word of God spread widely and grew in power. It got stronger as people walked in obedience. And I want to encourage you, when we compromise, when we shift and we kind of do the shuffle and try to figure out how we can get around God's laws or get around God's principles, what we will inevitably find ourselves doing is disconnecting in some way. And then we find we can't figure out why we have to push this beast of a spiritual car around all the time and why other people seem to be humming along and why we got stuck with a jalopy for a Christian life. And I want to tell you that God has called us to live an abundant Christian life, not problem-free. It will not be problem-free if you're following Christ. You will have challenges and sometimes challenges galore. But there's a great difference between just pushing your car along spiritually versus having all the equipment operating properly and then having to drive to a destination to accomplish the work of God under his power and his authority. And I want to encourage you as a church. God did some extraordinary things in this passage and he's calling us to get connected again. And some of you may have lost your way a little bit or struggled this week. God is so compassionate and gracious. He says, whoever conceals a sin will not prosper. If you conceal it, you will not prosper. But whoever confesses and renounces it will find mercy. And when you come to Christ this morning, we're about to have communion, as you come to your Savior, your friend, the one who paid it all that you might have life, your father, you will find mercy if you come with humility. And if you simply say to him, I'm not satisfied with the normative Christian life. I would like extraordinary. I want supernatural. I want everything that you have for me. I've been operating to the best of my ability with the strength that I have, but I'm not living nearly to the level that I believe you want me to. Forgive me for working around this all this time and fill me again do you want that? I want to say one last thing, and that's that there may be people here today that have never received Christ. You are um, interested in the gospel. You're interested in Jesus, but you've never come to that place of actually admitting that you've sinned. That, that basically means that you violated God, that there's a breach in the relationship. And whenever you have a broken relationship, you come to the person that you've broken that friendship with if you want to reconcile, and you say, I've been wrong. I was wrong. Hard words to say, but their two words are very simple to say. And to say, I ask you to forgive me for what I've done wrong. And I'm asking you to fill me with this power. I need a new life. This is one of the most confusing things for unbelievers because they think they just need to pray a simple little prayer and, and that uh, they've got God in their back pocket just for fire insurance. But they're missing out on the power of the Christian life. And if you've never experienced it, you must. You must. I implore you, you must come to Christ. He will give to you rivers of living water that will change your life, but you must come to him. He is the only source of this supernatural life. And so if you want that, I want to be able to pray for you today as well. But let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time here this morning. We thank you for your word. And God, to the best of my ability, I have shared what you put on my heart. Holy Spirit, you have to take the, the simple words, the flawed words maybe, that I was able to deliver and have them have their effect. 
let your word have its effect. May it grow in power. May your word spread in our lives and penetrate areas that have never been touched before. And Holy Spirit, forgive us for, for our foolishness in trying to live the Christian life without being fully connected with you. And there's nothing we can do except ask. And Jesus said, simply ask. And when a son asks his father for bread, does the father give him a stone? Of course not. If the son asks for fish, does his father give him serpents? Of course not. And Jesus said in the same way, any of those that wish can ask of God and he will freely give them of his Holy Spirit. And so Holy Spirit, we're asking, fill us again, empower us again, bring us back to the place where it's your ministry, it's your life, it's your priority, it's your agenda, it's your plan. And may your name be magnified in the islands. May your great and glorious and astonishing name be held in high esteem by all who come near us because of the sweet fragrance of Jesus and because of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And may you bring many into your kingdom, even this week, as we simply live the life that you've called us to live. And I want to give those of you that are still praying just an opportunity um, to receive Christ. Is there anyone here this morning that's never accepted Christ? You've never kind of begun that relationship and you would like to this morning. Just raise your hand up right where you are. Is there anyone here that would like to begin today a new relationship with Jesus Christ? I don't see any hands. Is there anyone out there? I want to pray for you. Okay, I'm trusting that everyone knows the Lord then. Father, thank you for what you're doing. And as we enter into communion now, Father, I pray that it would be a time of reflection, allowing you, God, to, to lift up the hood of the car and make the connections that we've overlooked. God, we're just not smart enough. We don't figure everything out. We need you. Speak to us individually. Tell us what we need to do and give us hearts to respond. In Jesus' name, amen.